Hear these words from the book that we love. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. And also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. The flood is a story that I avoid. I don't know about you all, but even when I'm reading um, like a picture kid's Bible with my children, uh, I, I avoid it. I go past it fast because, obviously, it's about judgment and death and about life reemerging, but about death first on a really large scale. Of course, there's also like the thousand and one questions that I ask, none of which this text answers, like, how'd they really get all on the ark? Like, just the birds, like, Male and female of every birds, and then of like the ones you can sacrifice seven pairs. Like the birds alone, and the fresh water, as well as the food and all that. And then the water, like how even locally could it have really, like there's, is there enough water on earth to cover even the tops of the mountains, as the text goes on to say, to say nothing of the whole world. Those answers just aren't there. And it sure doesn't avoid the judgment part, though. But here's the thing, and this is why, um, as a follower of Jesus, I have to, and probably, honestly, on a deeper level, not just know I should, but I want to go back to it. Because I want to find what it is about this story that was, and without a doubt was, so important to Israel. And was so important to Jesus 
which frankly is the only reason I care about this story in the first place, is because I am trying to be a disciple of Jesus, and this is a story that he himself believed he was fulfilling. And the early church, this passage was so important to them, and they were not ashamed of it. So with a second, with a third, with a fourth, with a hundredth, kind of putting myself in a naive posture and going back and saying, what's here? I'm going to try this morning to lead you back. And I think if we're going to get anywhere, because we're actually, if you were here last week, you know, we're not just going to spend one week. We're, we're, we're plodding through uh, the book of Genesis, and it spends a number of chapters on this flood. And we're just at the end of the first chapter now. And so we'll be in it again the next two weeks. And I think if we're going to get anywhere, and now we're, last week it was really the, the narrative before the flood. This is the flood itself, or the eve of it, rather. If we're going to get anywhere as we look at these chapters... I think we need to begin by understanding again why this story about destructive, chaotic floodwaters was so important to the people of God and still is. Two bits of context that you need, that that I need, if we're going to take it to heart in the way that the church is calling us to through the scriptures, the spirit as well. First, I think we need the context of the whole Bible. I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey to situate the flood in in a a very brief narrative of the Bible. So if you were with us a few months ago when we looked at Genesis chapter 1, before God ever says, let there be, like before anything's actually created, before let there be light, it says the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Now, the scriptures do say that God created all things of noth- out of nothing. That's just not what Genesis 1 says. It says that elsewhere. Genesis 1, there's this stuff before God starts his creative action. There's this waters, these chaotic waters, which are like a problem for what God intends to do. Read it. Genesis 1, 2. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the Waters. It's like God's got to clear out these waters day two, right? It's, it's very mysteriously saying he separates the waters above from the waters below to create this inhabitable space. Day three, he clears away the waters below to make space for dry land. Why? Well, because, again, as we talked about in Genesis 1 and 2, what's he doing? He's creating a temple on earth. All this world is a temple, a place of worship, and human beings are his images in his temple. Image of God, you and me, worshipers in his holy temple, which his creation was supposed to be. So this is the very, very beginning. You know, you fast forward a few chapters, and here we are. And as we're going to see next week, uh, this God, God providentially holding back the waters above and below and clearing out space for the land. The literal language of Genesis 7 we're going to see next week is the waters below and the waters above let loose. What's that picturing? Uncreation. That second, that third day being totally undone in judgment to wash away this stain of creation of utmost, utmost, as much as you can imagine, and then some violence is the word that's, that's given. Murderous, violent evil. Fast forward a little bit more. You know the story of the Exodus. The people of Israel, they're getting away from their slave masters in in Egypt, and they come up against the sea, and the sea parts, and they walk through on dry land, right? And what happens when they're on the dry land? These waters, waters of judgment now, right? 
Waters of judgment fall and wipe out all these violently murderous, evil slave masters. It is a second flood, make no mistake. And the people of Israel get to be on this inhabitable place. Well, eventually they make it to the promised land. And there's more and more and more. And that's just in the Old Covenant, what we call the left side of our Bibles, because we spend most of our time really in the, on the right side, in the New Testament side. Fast forward to the New Covenant, just before Jesus is on the scene. Just before Jesus is on the scene. You have this guy, John, baptizing people to get them ready for what? The voice calling in the wilderness, Mark 1, you know, Matthew 3, Luke 3, John 1. Every gospel has John. He's so important. He's calling the whole world, get ready, and he's at the waters. Get ready for this one, this righteous one who will sweep away all the evil, who will sweep it all away. And he talks about it like it's good news, by the way. And in baptizing, John the Baptist is basically saying, you and I, we need a flood. We need a flood to wash our evil away. And the one who's coming, this righteous king, he's going to bring it. But you know what else he's going to bring? He's going to bring an ark. He's going to lift you up through and over those waters that wash your evil away. All of this is the symbolism of our baptism. And if I'm losing you a little bit, I just got to tell you, this is how the scriptures work and this is how our faith works. You think you know, you come up again, you're like, oh, wow, there's more and there's more. This is what baptism is all about. Sin and evil being washed away in a water burial. I don't know if you knew that's what happened when you got baptized. A total sweeping away of the old life. A sweeping away of the sin bondage that leads to death. But in the same action, a lifting up in new life over the waves securely protected in the promises of God, dying and rising. That's our baptism. That's our faith. It's also, so the church has always proclaimed the flood story. This is the greater meaning we make out of it. Now, we're going to come back into what I just did a few times, maybe not at that length, the next week and the week after. But if you're getting a little bit of why, what I'm laying down, in earliest form, the church has said, in the book of Genesis, this is what's going on essentially in the flood. And if someone thinks this story is nothing more than a God of cruelty committing murder, then at the very, very least, it's the lack of context. I think a lot more often it's you and me having an unwillingness to see. It's because we don't like the topic of judgment at all. But of course, if we don't like judgment, we don't like redemption either. This is a story that Jesus believed he was fulfilling when he died so that his blood might wash over evil like a cleansing flood and then was raised to lift people with him to resurrection life. That's the context of the whole Bible. I usually don't do that. I usually don't take you on a whole journey like that, old covenant and new, but I feel like it's important because we dislike this passage so much. And it's not just me. I talk to a lot of you, believe it or not. Here's the other context, though. There's another context we need to keep in mind. You know what that is? It's the people in Scripture crying out for a flood. It's the slaves in Egypt crying out, Lord God, how long, how, how long will this centuries-long oppression 
go on until evil is wiped out and we're brought to a place where we can be free. That's the context for the flood story. It's the context for um, people in 2022 Philadelphia crying out, my God, how long until I'm delivered from this block, till this neighborhood stops raining bloodshed and it's wiped away, cleansed, and something cleaning that also eradicates not just the fruit, but the root of murderous, violent evil, which is everywhere. That's the context you need, too. And it's the context Israel had when they read it. They said, this cleansing has to come. It's our only hope. But the sensitive ones also said, but how will we not get swept away with it? Because are our hands really clean? Do our hands not also have some of the blood on it as these murderous, villainous sons of Cain and all the Nephilim that Stephen walked you through? My goodness, thanks Stephen for taking that one. That's the other context, and it's a really important context for this season of Advent. What is Advent? Those four Sundays and their weeks in between leading up to Christmas. It is not for holly. It's not for berries. It's not for carols. It's not for hot cocoa. It's for saying, how long? How long till you come? How long till it's over? Till every taste of victory is all the way brought home. Not just the promise. Thank you, God, for the promise. Thank you for the covenant. But all, all evil done. How long? And let's be honest. The full victory isn't totally tasted yet. That starts next week. That's why we're not sorry to spend Advent in the flood. Two brief points, because like I said, I don't have to say everything this week, because we're going to be here for a while. Corruption, the corruption of the whole world. And the second point, the redemption of the whole world. First, the corruption of the whole world as described in Genesis 6. I don't know if you knew this, but this is actually fascinating. Every contemporary culture of Israel, of ancient Israel, had a flood narrative. Like, everybody knew about this. Now, they had different flood uh, narratives and mythologies. The Sumerian king's list, one of the earliest empires, Sumer, had a flood narrative. The Akkadians had one called the Atrahasis. The Babylonians, who later invaded and swept away Israel like a flood, I'm telling you, the flood imagery goes all the way through our Old Testaments. The Babylonians themselves had this epic of Gilgamesh. So that was what was in common. There was this common cultural memory of some kind of cataclysmic flood event that they all made meaning of. But here's the difference. They all made different meaning of it. So for just for example, the Babylonians in the epic of Gilgamesh, um, when they asked the question, well, why did the flood happen? It was because people were noisy and annoying. I'm being dead serious. They believed the gods hated humans so much they just didn't want their noise anymore, and so they swept them away. And the other question, which is very important, who got to get delivered from it? Kings. Kings did. Genesis, Genesis makes much different meaning of the flood. The reason is corruption. God said... Israel says, no, God's not irritated just by our noise. He's deeply concerned with sin and injustice. Read with me again verses 11 through 13. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, 
for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Filled with violence. Again, if you were here last week, I, I don't need to spend too much time on this. Other just, other, just need to summarize what Stephen already offered you from Genesis 6, 1 through 8. The biblical narrative is trying to tell us that God is simply accelerating to its natural end what humans had essentially already done by violently taking life over and over and over again to its utmost. If you remember all the way back in Genesis 4 when Cain kills Abel, uh, there's the language of God says, Cain, your brother's blood is, do you remember what he says? Calling out to me from the ground. And you see the language of Genesis 6 as we're reading it here, the ground is saturated now. The ground is, human sin has affected not just other people, but the, the creation itself to such an extent that the violence is crying out. People had already undone God's creation and set all life on a course towards death. And God accelerates it is all. And says, here's what you're invariably moving towards. You may have it now to the utmost. And that is really the theme of judgment. God letting us have what we are working to apart from him to the utmost in the end. That is certainly the judgment of Genesis 6. And last week, Stephen tried to apply this for us. How can you and I today on this side of the flood and all the Bible in between us and them, how can we be more aware of the places where death is at work in our midst? And he asked you to do that, and I wonder if you had a chance to do it, because there's a lot of ways that violence that you're not altogether separate from is at work in our city, in our world, and in your heart. There's war all the time. And it's just not on mass scales. It's also surgically with drones. And we hardly think about it. One thing we, we, we've been kind of forced to think about, and some of you have talked to me about this, is you know, yesterday the, the World Cup started in Qatar. And uh, the report's coming out, and I'm no expert, but it's a, it's a raising volume of, uh, the number of the number of people who were conscripted into forced labor. I mean, it's almost biblical in its scope. These huge, massive stadiums are going up, 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 and the bodies keep falling in terms of workers' rights and death and terrible working conditions and really modern-day slavery, and we're all getting together to watch it on TV. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And yes, um, this culture is also very guilty of the many, many, many lives of the unborn that have been taken. It's everywhere. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't let you sit in the judgment, judgment seat and blame anybody else. He says, do you have murder in your hearts? You need to line up in the dock with others who have it on their hearts as well. Where is murder being justified? Where is the violence that we love and we think we're outside of? Of course, Genesis 6 is talking about an e evil on an even bigger scale. And, and I do think, you know, we talk about this sometimes. I think the flood is a really important time to talk about the fact that in the nuclear age, 
all of us are very aware that we have the power to destroy all creation now. Like, nobody doubts it. If humanity collectively decided to go in that direction, we could destroy the entire planet. We're, we taste it now. And a lot of us are involved in conversations about, like, what are other ways that in this century we could act in ways that preserve God's creation instead of murderously destroying it? There's been an even fresher awareness in the past few years. Some of you know the Veritas Forum. Uh, they come to Philadelphia once in a while. There's this, this Christian organization that engages thought leaders on topics all over the planet. And they had this conversation that was really interesting called, what do you want to be here 100 years from now? What do you want to be here 100 years from now? And they talked about the pessimists and the optimists. And you find where you are. The pessimists envision in 100 years an uninhabitable world with widespread environmental ruin. The optimists envision a world with creative new housing projects in flourishing cities. The pessimists envision a natural resources crisis as bad as the movie Mad Max. Optimists envision the global adoption of energy-efficient transportation. Not just guzzling gas like Mad Max does. Optimists, maybe in 100 years we'll have cyborg butlers that do all the things we don't want to do. Pessimists, maybe in 2022 we will be subject to our robot overlords. And we can be a little silly about it, but this is all in our gut. And it's all in the headlines. And the climate anxiety, if you want to call it that, or the, just the sense of, there are problems global in scope that we're all yelling about and it doesn't seem to get better and no one stinking agrees. What do you do? I actually think if you're looking at passages in scripture, the creation and decreation passages, there's a lot worse places to go. So I want to sit with this just for a second. You know the hardest assignment you ever got in school were, were group assignments. Do you remember those? Where like you could be have four people in your group and two of them do all the work and the other two sit there just chewing gum and going home and doing nothing and coming in, they just know somebody's gonna do everything. Our group assignment is the world. Like it or not, that's what it means to be image of God. That means that's what it means to be image in God's creation temple. That's what it means to be the steward of the earth. There is something wherever you are in this conversation, I really don't care pastorally in one sense. There is a weight we need to feel. You didn't choose it. You didn't choose to be alive either. But in his goodness you are. You also didn't choose, but you are a steward of this creation. And I wonder if you feel it. I want... You need to. It is hard to worship God and not biblically speaking. So what do we do? What can we possibly do about reversing this group assignment where it seems like we don't know what to do or a lot of us don't care? What is the value of the righteousness of one, of a Noah, let's say, or of just a small community in a world that sometimes feels like it's disintegrating? That's the second and final point. 
redemption. The corruption of the whole world, this scripture moves towards the redemption of the whole world. In verse 9 and 10, in contrast to this totally destructive and violent culture, there is one righteous. The scriptures say there's one person. Verse 13, God honors Noah by letting him in on his plan to destroy the earth and tells him to go build a vessel of redemption, this ark. Further down in verses 19 and 20, God kind of honors Noah's righteousness almost by making him a new Adam. Do you see how he says, I'm going to bring to you all of the creatures of the earth. There's an echo here of Genesis 2, where after man and woman are created, or after man is created, all animals are brought before to be named. It's almost like Noah is this, this guy being commissioned into a new humanity because he's righteous. Because he's righteous. What is this passage calling us to in terms of blessing the world, being righteous in the world, and maybe even saving the world? Because this passage is about that. There is a way, a common way this text is applied that needs to be corrected. I'm going to give you the wrong way first. How are you, you individually and you, us, collectively, how are we all going to totally reject evil, be a totally righteous steward, and deliver ourselves and this generation from hell on earth, and also appease a God who seems pretty angry. How will we be Noah? That is not how I want you to apply this text. I do not believe it's the faithful way or the way the church consistently has throughout its history. Listen, God does care about and notice your faithfulness in a wicked generation. He does. He sees every good deed. It's a preservative for the world. It lets light shine in the darkness. Who knows where we would be if it were not for our brothers and sisters of generations past who have been faithful up to today. Temporally speaking, we need city planners, politicians, engineers, teachers, parents, and above all, obedient followers of Christ who follow him on this group assignment to love the world. We need all that, but, but, if we think that it's our job to save the world, we have lost the context. And that's why I needed to lay it out for you at the beginning. I don't know if this frustrates or frees you, but let me say this very clearly. As you read this story, be careful how you put yourself in the shoes of Noah. You are not Noah. You're not Noah. Christ is Noah. Christ is the greater Noah. Christ is the one human representative who delivers us from destruction through his own faithfulness. Again, at the cross, evil covers the world. But by the blood of Christ, evil is covered. And by his offering, his people are forgiven and brought safely home to God's new creation. 
Your ultimate hope is anchored in another Noah. That's Christ. So who are you and I? This is really important. Um, This is one of those things that I hope when you come back to this story again and again, which you have to, in your Christian journey, that you never unsee. Who are you in this text if you're not Noah? You're one of the family members that get to go with him. That's who you are in this story. To be a Christian is to be on the boat with Christ, the greater Noah. Verse 18. A word is used here for the first time so far in the scriptures. God says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. It's, the first time the, it's not the first time the, co- the, the concept of covenant is used. It's the first time the word is used, covenant. A covenant is a solemn promise between two people or groups usually exchanging obligations. God's essentially saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'll keep my end. And God says to Noah, Noah, you keep your end. But do you see that the covenant doesn't just bless Noah? It blesses all these people who are with him. Really, anyone who clings to him. His sons, his wife, his sons' wives. There's a lot of non-scriptural literature that was preached long before the coming of Christ of the people of God imagining what must it have been like for people to have had the opportunity to cling to Noah, this faithful one that God had made a covenant with. Apparently seven did. The covenant doesn't just bless Noah. It blesses those who put their hope and trust in him. Why will the world be saved? Because Christ was faithful. Christ, the true and obedient human being who also happened to be God, who took on flesh for us and died to cover evil, was raised to carry us above and over it through to our permanent home. And what is on us to do? To cling to him with all we've got. To trust in him. To place ourselves with him to say yes to him, to make him our king. Final word. What does the flood have to say about problems that are too big to comprehend? And we've got like a ton of them. What does the flood have to say about problems that are too big to comprehend? Problems that are real. Well, our ingenuity, our responsibility, in our obedience to God matter a great deal. But they are lived out in the context of the grace of God. We do not save the world. We do not save the world. We do not save the world. We work in concert with the God who does. Divine mercy has and will redeem the world, has redeemed the world, and will redeem the world through Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.